So, let me set the stage for you for just a moment before we really get the sermon going. Let's remember where we've been. Uh, We have been watching Paul travel throughout uh, mostly Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and modern-day Greece. And he's sharing the gospel with people. Now, he's completed two missionary journeys that took a period of several years. And last week, we saw him in Corinth, which was the last major stop on his second missionary journey. And he stayed there for at least a year and a half and then headed back on home to Antioch, then went and strengthened the churches in Asia Minor that he'd been to on his first missionary journey and second missionary journey. And now we've got sort of a parenthesis in some ways. Paul uh, steps off the stage for a moment, and we meet uh, Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, who Priscilla and Aquila, actually, Paul, remember, had worked with them uh, earlier in his ministry. So uh, you got to keep track of the place names here. Remember, uh, this story is going to take place really in the city of Ephesus with a look back toward Corinth. And Ephesus and Corinth weren't too far away. Ephesus is in southwestern modern-day Turkey. Corinth is uh, on the coast of Greece. So I don't know. I didn't do the research to find out this week. I don't know if you could take a ship more or less directly from Ephesus to Corinth, but certainly you would have, Paul would have taken a ship. All the Christians would have taken a ship across the Aegean Sea there to travel between the two places. And Ephesus is probably the most important city in the region, the biggest. It's a commercial hub. Uh, actually, it's one of the most impressive places, ancient places you can visit today. I know some of you have been there. I think uh, uh, the Karens is. Did you? You went to Ephesus, didn't you? Yeah, it's twice. It was so amazing. They had to go back a second time. So I've been to Ephesus as well, and the excavations there are enormous. They're extensive. Actually, we're going to see a, a scene in Ephesus next week where there's a riot in the city, and I've stood in the theater where that riot happened. Tom and Mary, you probably did as well, with a bunch of people jumping up and down and yelling, great is Diana of the Ephesians, or great is Artemis of the Ephesians, depending on whether you're using the Greek or Roman names. But this story takes place in Ephesus, and we meet a Jew named Apollos. And Apollos is an enormously impressive man. It says he's a native of Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Alexandria has the most famous and probably the largest ancient library in the world. It was burned down at one point during history, so we don't actually have uh, the library itself, but we have numerous references to it. Uh, Alexandria was a place where a number of Jews had uh, set up a community. There And we have some very famous Jews, uh, like Philo of Alexandria, who did his best to figure out how can our faith, how can the Jewish faith and Greek philosophy get along. And he's an enormously influential scholar. Alexandria is the place where the Greek translation of the, uh, the, the Old Testament was first put together. Uh, it's called the Septuagint. You'll sometimes see it abbreviated in Roman numerals as LXX or 70. Because there's a legend that goes along with this, that 70 scholars went to 70 different rooms and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And when they came out, they had 70 identical manuscripts. That's almost certainly a legend, but it's a neat story. (laughs) 
Alexandria was a place where educated and cultured people came from, and Apollos was no exception. If we were looking to hire a new pastor, we're not, right? Just checking to see if my job's been posted. But uh, if we were, Apollos would definitely be at the top of the list because of how gifted and how smart he was. And let me tell you, if Apollos came to us the way he came to Ephesus, just as impressive as he was, he would be exactly the wrong man for the job. How could this be? How could this be? Well, see, the key thing that we need to know about Apollos as he arrives in Ephesus is not his impressive credentials, his impressive abilities, not how persuasively he spoke, but that Apollos, even though he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, even though he knew an awful lot about Jesus, even though he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, he only knew the baptism of John. Now, Maybe this seems a little bit like splitting hairs to us this morning, right? Theologians love to argue about obscure points of theology that nobody cares about, don't they? Or at least this is the perception that we often have. In the Middle Ages, uh, we had actually a whole group of, of scholars rise up, and they were called the scholastics, all right? Thomas Aquinas is the greatest of the scholastics. And there's a lot that's worth reading out of these guys, if you don't mind reading like 11th and 12th century materials written in Latin, and, you know, hopefully translated in English. That's how I read it anyway. But these scholastics became so interested in, in the fine points of theology that someone once joked that, you know, they're asking questions and talking about things like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. The answer to that question, do you know the answer to that question? Who cares? See, we can be the smartest people, the very smartest people in the world, and yet still constantly miss the point. Do you know any people like that? You say, man, that person is so smart. It's a shame that they spend their intelligence that way. What a waste. Looking into things that don't matter, wasting it, uh, not contributing in the ways that they could. And Apollos, in a sense, is like that. And, and it's, it's not because there's anything wrong with Apollos's intellect, more so than anyone else. The problem is he only knows the baptism of John. This theology, this thing really matters. Let's go back in the book of Luke. Because remember, the book of Acts is written by Luke. It's a, this is actually the second volume of a two-volume work. Luke says at the beginning of Acts, in my first work, Theophilus, I told you all about what Jesus did and said. So these are connected books. So let's see what Luke has to say about John the Baptist and his baptism. So John is out in the wilderness before Jesus begins his ministry, and people are coming from all over to see him and hear his teaching and to be baptized by him. And this is what John says. He says, uh, the people, first of all, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. He said, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Think about 
kings, right? They have a servant for everything, right? Uh, if you remember Louis XIV, the king of France, uh, several hundred years ago, the most famous probably of the French kings. And he, when he went to sleep, there were a bunch of his nobles who just stood around in case he needed anything. And then when he woke up in the morning, there were a bunch of nobles who were already gathered in his bedroom waiting to serve him. And John is saying, I am not even worthy to be one of those people standing around waiting for the king to wake up. I'm not even worthy to tie or untie the shoes of the one who is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what is Apollos missing? Again, if if he was interviewing for a job, we'd be tempted to hire him just like that because of how capable he was. But Apollos didn't have the Holy Spirit. He knew only the baptism of John. Now, by the way, if you go reading about this uh, later, there's some scholars who think that uh, uh, Apollos did have the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're wrong. That's the best I can do in the time allotted to me this morning. I can tell you more about it at another time if you'd like. But I think the context of this passage makes clear. And here's why. Because when Apollos uh, ministers in Ephesus, right, he has a powerful ministry in Ephesus. It says, again, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he is sharing the message about Jesus with all of the people in Ephesus. And then in chapter 19, do you remember the second half of the story? Apollos has gone off to Corinth after he has received the Holy Spirit. And Paul meets some disciples in Ephesus. Remember I said the place names are important. Apollos was ministering in Ephesus. He leaves. Paul comes to Ephesus. He meets some disciples of Jesus Christ. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How had these disciples heard about Jesus? Almost certainly through Apollos. The story is leading us to expect that it's Apollos had done this ministry, and now there are people who say, we like Jesus, we think he's great, we want to follow him, but they haven't received the baptism of Jesus, because they were taught by Apollos, and he didn't know about it. How is Apollos going to baptize people into the name of Jesus if he hasn't been baptized into the name of Jesus? See, when we go out and we do ministry as followers of Jesus Christ, we will be able to take people as far as we have been taken ourselves, won't we? Sometimes I think we go, well, you know, my my spiritual formation, my becoming like Jesus, that's important for me. But did you know it's not just important for you, it's important for the people around you that you meet every day, that you speak to every day, because you will only be able to point those people toward Jesus insofar as you know him and as you're a part of him. Your discipleship, my discipleship, is not a purely personal and private matter. Because who I am impacts the people around me. And when I'm following Jesus, you know, at a crawl, I'm only going to encourage crawl followers of Jesus as well. 
Now, don't get me wrong. God does amazing things. He can do more than I can do. He takes these little tiny things that I offer and he makes them big. He takes, same with all of us, he takes the little tiny things that we offer and he makes them big. But he usually does it by carrying us along at the same time. We can only minister to others insofar as we have received the Holy Spirit ourselves. Because it's the Holy Spirit who does the heavy lifting. Think about what Apollos has missed. Think about what he's missed. Do you remember the whole rest of the book of Acts? Do you remember Pentecost? Is there Pentecost without the Holy Spirit? If, if, if you can't remember Pentecost, remember the disciples are in the upper room. Jesus is left. They're like, we don't know what's going to happen next. They're just praying and they're waiting and waiting and praying. And finally, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And they start, telling, they start shouting about how great Jesus is. And not only are they shouting about how great Jesus is, they're doing it in every language under the sun. And they go outside and they start shouting, this is who Jesus is. And because it's the, the Feast of Pentecost, they're Jews from all over the Roman Empire who speak all sorts of different languages. And they are all hearing the message in their native tongue. There's no Pentecost without the Holy Spirit. Apollos has missed out on Pentecost. How, no matter how well Apollos speaks, will he speak as well as the disciples filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? And the answer is no. Of course he won't. He can't. No one speaks a language that they've never learned. Not on human terms. Think about the disciples after they've been proclaiming the message and they get dragged before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin beats them up and says, stop it or something worse will happen to you. And they go home and they meet with the church in Jerusalem. They said, hey, we have a responsibility. Jesus said we're supposed to be witnesses. And now there's all of this opposition out there, people threatening our very lives. We need boldness. And they sit down and they start to pray. And as they pray, the Holy Spirit comes on all of them. And the place that they live is shaken. And instead of being terrified, they say, God is with us. Look at how he's answering our prayers. And they go right back out and start telling everyone about Jesus Christ. Folks, in the Holy Spirit, God's people have no breaking point. No place where fear overwhelms us. That's a Holy Spirit thing. And Apollos is missing that. No matter how wonderful a speaker he is. No matter how excited he is. He is about what he proclaims. You know what? I, when I read this about Apollos, what I think most of all that might resonate with us today is that he is genuine. And people today love genuine people who are open and honest. And you can read the story of their lives and the way that they live. They're the same here and they're the same there. We love genuine people who are what they appear to be. And Apollos is like that, but it's not, it's not enough. We value genuineness and authenticity, especially younger people in our culture. And I think we ought to cultivate that in a sense because it helps us speak to our culture. But here's the thing. We can be genuine about some pretty awful stuff, can't we? We can really believe in things that are terribly, terribly misguided and wrong and damaging, and destructive. It's not enough to be genuine. We need more. We need the Holy Spirit. And just before I 
I move on from this first point that the problem with Apollos is he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We're forming our nominating committee to nominate new elders and deacons. And uh, some of you may be asked to serve on that committee. And if you are, we need to remember what's really important about the leaders that we're seeking. It's not that they're the best looking. It's not that they're the most gifted and capable. It's that they really know Jesus. And they are really filled with the Holy Spirit. And they really live like him. I have to tell you, I'm sick to death of an ordinary average life. I'm sick to death of ordinary average outcomes. I want a Holy Spirit-empowered life where people are speaking all sorts of weird languages that others can understand. But I'm not talking about the gift of tongues here if you're following along with me. I'm talking about Pentecost. I want a life where instead of saying, man, that person's so far gone, there's no way we can help them, we say, let's, let's see what the Holy Spirit can do. I want a life these days where I wake up and I really have victory over sin and temptation in my own heart, where I'm really transformed because I'm sick of me. I'm sick of me the way that I am. I think our culture, we try and settle, don't we? Oh, you're wonderful just the way you are. No, we're not. We were created to be wonderful. But without the Holy Spirit, we will always fall short of what we were created to be. That's what that Bible Project video was about, wasn't it? God gave us a law so that, first of all, we'd recognize... Oh, no, I can't do that. We look at the law. That's the first thing we should think. We want to think, I got it, right? But then Jesus comes along and he says, like, you've heard it said, not, you know, don't murder, right? And Jesus is choosing this on purpose because everyone in the crowd would be like, I have kept that commandment, right? I have not murdered anybody in my life. That seems like an easy one, doesn't it? Do we really need do not murder in the Ten Commandments? Isn't that one self-evident somehow? Why was God wasting his time? Jesus was saying, you need to understand what that commandment's really about. It's not about don't pick up the knife and stab someone till they're dead. I mean, it, it covers that. But it's about the attitude that begins in your heart of I hate that person and I wish they were dead. And I've thought that. Have you? See, the point of the law is we can't even keep the easiest one. Jesus said, if you have been angry with your brother in your heart, you have already murdered him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Great Divorce, talks about a man who was actually a murderer. And uh, there's his boss from earth comes up to heaven and meets this man who was a murderer. And he says, I can't believe that you're here. You're a murderer. And the murderer says to him, that's not the worst thing I did in my life, which totally blows his boss away, right? You did something worse than that murder that you were convicted and put in jail for? And he says, yes, every night I went home and I murdered you in my heart. And when I murdered that guy, when I actually took his life, that was 
the work of but a second in my heart, a second's worth of anger, but I nursed my anger against you every day. I murdered you over and over again. The first thing the law teaches us is we can't keep the law. We need a savior. We need hearts that are made whole. We can absolutely be wonderful, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done in our place. Isn't that better? Isn't it better than trying to live a life of constant achievement so much that we'll be noticed and loved and valuable? To say, God gives me the achievement of Jesus Christ. God gives me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because I earned it, but because that's how much he loved me. Because who can take that away from you? There's nothing. And there's nobody. Now you may be thinking, okay, so we need the Holy Spirit. Like to be Jesus followers at all, we need the Holy Spirit. To do the mission of the church, we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is the key that unlocks it all. This is absolutely true. So how do we be people filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the question on your mind, isn't it? That's a question on my mind, because I'm telling you, I'm sick of this. I know I want to be a Holy Spirit-filled person. I feel like I get it sometimes, and sometimes I don't. And you know, how do I just have the Holy Spirit? Just tell me that. Well, first of all, the passage isn't about that, so that's the end of the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. The passage is not about that, but we will take you to other places in Scripture to tell you what this is about. How do we be people filled with the Holy Spirit? First, be baptized. That is in the passage, isn't it? What's the problem with Apollos? He knows only the baptism of John. What happens when Paul meets these 12 men who have been instructed by Apollos and don't have the Holy Spirit? He says, get Jesus' baptism. And they baptized them right there. And what happened? Okay, I'm going to read this whole thing. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. You said you were sorry when you were baptized by John. That's good. He, but he told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. That's your next step. And once you believe in Jesus, it says on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the only time we rebaptize somebody. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. What did they need for the Holy Spirit? They need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Why is baptism so significant? Why does baptism do this? Well, because Jesus baptizes, like we heard in Luke 3, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember, that's very reminiscent of Pentecost. Because how did the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples at Pentecost? Look like fire was coming and hanging over their heads. There's more to say there, but we'll leave it there for just a moment. So just be baptized. Let me take you to Romans chapter 6. Paul is answering a group of folks. These He's been saying, grace is all you need. God forgives your sin. That's the only way you can be made right with God. And so now he anticipates that when some people hear him say that, they'll say, well, then I might as well just sin all I want because grace will take care of it. That's all I need. And Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Look, God, I'm doing you a favor. People will see just how full of grace you are because all sin and sin and sin. 
And Paul uses a double negative in Greek, which in English, a double negative is a positive, right? I'm not not going to the store means I am going to the store. But in Greek, a double negative sounds like this. No, no, no. What shall we do? Shall we continue sinning so that grace may increase? No. With an exclamation point. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then here's the key for us this morning. Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. He said, you really died when you were baptized. You really died. It wasn't just to, you know, here's some, here's some water, let's get you wet. That was fun. Like it's, you know, fun for the pastors, right? Like I'm going to get you all cold and wet. This is great. Some people have accused me of that. It's absolutely true. But fortunately, there's more going on. God is actually at work. He is connecting us to the reality of Christ's death so that sin and the law no longer have any power over him. And now the Holy Spirit can come and live in us because we are washed clean. Baptism doesn't save us. Only Jesus saves us. But baptism is that embracing of all that Jesus has done for us. And it's God filling us up with the benefits of our salvation. Baptism really matters. I want to share with you a couple of questions from the Westminster Longer Catechism. Okay, uh, or larger catechism. Uh, so if you can give me the next slide here, it should be here. If it's not, I'm really in trouble. One more. Yes. Question 161. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? I know some of that language is wonky, but here's what it means. The sacraments are the Lord's Supper and baptism for us as Protestants. These are the sacraments. And these two things together actually communicate the gift of our salvation to us. They are not our salvation, but they give us the gifts of our salvation. So it's, next slide. The sacraments do this, give us the gifts of our salvation, not by any power in themselves, like if we just dump water on people, this is what happens, or any virtue derived from the piety or intention of the one by whom they are administered means that it's not because the pastor is holy or the priest or whoever does the sacrament, but only by the working of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Christ by whom they are instituted. So that means every time you take the Lord's Supper, what's important is not how spiritual you feel, not whatever spiritual power you detect during that, not how good a job you do confessing your sin beforehand, not how good a job the pastor and the elder do in in introducing the sacrament to you. What matters is the Holy Spirit who in that moment comes to you and ministers to you and gives you the gifts of assurance. Just as surely as I'm eating this, so surely has Christ benefited me, who gives you the gift of faith, who gives you the gift of, of nourishing your soul in the things that the sacrament represents. In baptism, you are really connected to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we don't just go under the water, do we? That'd be awkward. We come back out to new life. That's why we don't need to be baptized again because the important thing isn't 
Me who comes to be baptized and my intention and my faith in that moment, but the Holy Spirit who acts. And so if someone ever comes, and this has happened in the church, someone will come and say, you know, I think I need to be baptized again because God's doing something in my life. And I'll say, you do need to do something, but it's not baptism. Because God sealed you. What God did in that baptism is just as true today and all those days when you were wandering away or when you were broken as it was in the day you received it. But here's what we want to do. Let's bring out some water and set it there so we can remember your baptism. And let's take those baptismal vows again. Who is your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Will you follow him? I will. Let's keep up your end of the baptism. Let's do that. Let's go to the next slide. What is baptism? We've been describing it a little bit, but let's just hear it from the Westminster folks because they're smarter than me. One more. Next slide. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament in which Christ has ordained the washing with water. Remember, Christ told us to do this. Matthew 28. Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father who willed our salvation and who sent Jesus, the Son who accomplished our salvation and whose righteousness we now have, and the Holy Spirit who now connects us to all of the benefits of our salvation and seals us to God for the rest of our lives long. And this baptism is a sign and seal of ingrafting into himself, into Jesus of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit. Uh, you hear me say sometimes, uh, the wages of sin is death, right? We were dead in our sins and transgressions. And what do dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. They just be dead. Dead people don't do anything. Can I say this another way? Because we get confused about this. We think that, well, I may be dead. I don't know Jesus. I'm apart from Jesus, so I'm dead. But I can still do lots of stuff. No, you can't. You are dead. So God has to come from outside of us and make us alive again. That's what regeneration is. Regeneration by his spirit. Next slide. Of adoption. Right? In our baptism, we are formally adopted. You might, you might have a kid who lives with his, uh, with his guardians or her guardians. Right? And maybe they're a nephew or a niece. Maybe mom and dad have died and these people are now taking care of them. And sometimes in that situation, there comes a point, doesn't there, where the guardians will say, you know what, let's make it official. I'm going to, even though I'm your guardian, I'm going to formally adopt you. I want you to have that moment to know you are my son, my daughter. That's what baptism does for us. That's God's adoption ceremony. You are my son. You are my daughter. And nothing can ever change that. Because it's God's declaration, not ours. Uh, it connects us to resurrection unto everlasting life. Like we said, you don't just go under the water, you come back up, don't you? Now you have the Holy Spirit. Now you're ready to live as God's son and daughter. Recognizably so. Not like you've stolen the name, but like you're beginning to grow into his name every day. The party is baptized. The person baptized is solemnly admitted into the visible church. You are one of us now, right? One of us. One of us. And enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. 
This is what Apollos was missing. Can he be a Christian? Can he really follow Jesus without this? Baptism doesn't save. He can really really get into heaven someday, but he will not have the gifts that God gives to his people in this life without his baptism. So first question for you today is to take home. Are you baptized? Because if you're not, you are missing out. And let's get that taken care of. But let's keep going. If we want to be people filled with the Holy Spirit, be baptized and remember it. I am baptized. I am a person who is gifted God's Holy Spirit. And then what do we, how do we take advantage of that gift? Well, maybe nowhere more so than pray. Pray. I mean, how are we going to invoke the Holy Spirit unless we talk to him? Unless we, how are we going to be filled with the Holy Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son unless we are constantly asking the Father and Son, fill me up with your Holy Spirit. Direct that Spirit to come in. Holy Spirit, fill me up. Start those sorts of prayers. Then pray Holy Spirit types of prayers at the same time, right? It's, we talked about how the believers, the disciples, were brought in front of the Sanhedrin, right? They've been talking about Jesus. The Sanhedrin brings them in, beats them up, says, don't ever do that again. And so they say, this is a big deal. We're worried about this. And they respond by prayer. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit and some other stuff. And it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray. Is there anyone in here who is capable of prayer? Yeah. Yeah. You've been ba- if you've been baptized, you can pray. You can be full of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, yesterday, George Clausen and I went to uh, Escalon uh, for Presbytery because we didn't just think like, hey, let's go to Escalon on Saturday. <laughs> uh, and we heard a sermon from Dave Kerr, who's Joshua Kerr's dad, and that was really neat. And Dave uh, talked to us about a passage out of the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read that for you here right now. We need to cultivate this attitude that we're going to find here in Exodus. uh, Did I say 13 or 14? No, Exodus 14. Oh, great. Of course, it's split over two pages. Okay. Moses answered the people. They're standing in front of the Red Sea. Right? They got the Red Sea in front of them. They got the army of Egypt behind them. And the people of Israel are saying, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us to the wilderness to die? Right? Which is one of the all-time great sarcastic lines I've ever heard in my life. Not a particularly faith-filled one, though, so I'd be careful about using that. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, to which they say, yeah, right. And he says, stand firm, and they say, never. And Moses says, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. I think it's important for us to remember this is hard for the Israelites. Army behind, sea in front, Death on both sides, and Moses says, Stand firm, don't be afraid. Like, this is the worst advice we've ever gotten, Moses. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. See, Apollos, and 
Apollos is a wonderful Christian. I don't, I'm not picking on him this morning. But Apollos, without the Holy Spirit, says, I got to get out my sword and somehow defeat this army. Right? And you and I, isn't that what we think over and over and over again in our lives? I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this, this month, right? I, I got to find a way. I got to make it work. I don't know how, you know, they're teaching these crazy things in school. It feels like our society is just collapsing around us. Somehow, I have to get up and make a difference. Somehow, I have to do this. I have to bear the weight of this. I have to be the one who acts. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you to. Did God say, yeah, go do it. Go design a new curriculum. Like, go make all this happen. Did he say, go out and steal some money? Did he say, go out and get a new job? Did he say, go out and make this happen on your own power? No. Stand firm. You'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The greatest army that they knew, you'll never see them again. How? The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. What? God, I've got all these problems. If I stay still, they'll overwhelm me. Well, yeah, that's, that's because you're thinking like a person without the Holy Spirit. Stand still, and the Lord will fight for you. Now, of course, standing still is not a perfect standing still, right? Because God opened up the Red Sea in front of Israel, and he didn't say, keep standing still. He said, move! And I opened it. Go! But I think we need to hear this today, don't we? Because our answer to most of life's problems is to try harder. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Another guy, I'm just shamelessly stealing everything we heard yesterday. But the other thing we heard is, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? He, he, he said to his disciples, you feed them. The disciples said, send them away. There's, there's all these people. There's at least 5,000 men. There's like 20,000 people at least. And we're in a desolate place. We're in the wilderness. Send them away so they can get their food. And Jesus says, oh, you feed them. Like, did you not hear the math, Jesus? There's 12 of us and tens of thousands of them. Jesus, well, what do you have? Five loaves and two fish. See, we can't do it. Send them away. Jesus says, it's enough. What, is, what happens? Does Jesus say, you turn these loaves and fish into enough food for all these people? Does he say that? Did he say that to you when you see the problems in your family? Did he say, you fix it? I'm tired of helping you. I'm busy. You asked me for something yesterday. Is this going to be an everyday thing? Does God talk to you like that? Did God tell you, you die for the world? You take care of everybody's sin. Did he say, you be the judge? No. He said none of those things. Jesus said, it's enough. And he took the loaves and the fish and he broke them. And they started filling baskets. And they kept filling baskets. Where did all these baskets even come from? <laughs> and he's just going and going. But the disciples weren't passive either, were they? Because Jesus said, now you pick up the baskets and you hand out the food. 
See, our job isn't to create all new, brand new solutions to everything that's happening in the world. It's not our job as followers of Jesus. Our job is to take what God has already done and start to pass that out. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. Are you depressed? Do you think nobody cares about you? The God of the universe made you for a purpose, and he is in this room by his Holy Spirit. He loves you so deeply that he sent me to you today. Sometimes you may hear somebody told a story of he was on an airplane, and God said, go talk to that woman who's crying across the dial. It's like, never. And God eventually you know, kicks his butt enough that he goes over and he does it. And that's what he said, God sent me here to you. God sent me here to you. I mean, he didn't say it at first because, you know, people, when you say that, you say, oh, hey, God sent me to you today. Like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> Instead, he showed up and he, he, he listened and he talked. And after he heard your story, God sent me to you today. And whether you hear that voice making you walk across the aisle or not, God sent you to the people in your lives to pass out what he has already given you. Can you do that? We can. We can. That's the kind of life I want to live. Have the mindset of a person who simply passes along what you have received because we are trusting in the Holy Spirit. It's not up to me. It's up to the Holy Spirit. He will just come right on through me to you.